Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Wrestling from the Crowd. My name is Ray, and this is episode 8. Now, like always, I just want to say thank you to those who tune in and listen every day, or for if you download my podcast every Sunday when an episode comes out. I just want to show my appreciation and say thank you, no matter how many times it takes. Uh, This week's episode, we're going to start off the same as every other episode. We're going to start it off with Monday Night Raw. And we've seen Raw got a new theme song. They moved from their Slipknot theme song. Now they're having NF theme song. For those of you who don't know NF, he's a Christian rapper. He's been around for a long time. He's had albums like Mansion and Therapy. He's had some really good albums. You should go check him out. But that's the new opening theme for Raw. The song is called The Search. It's the first song on the album. I'm sure you'll like it because I, I listened to it and I was like, yeah, this is really good. So you'll you'll pretty, you'll pretty like it. I'm pretty sure of it. Uh, so we've seen Raw kick off with Alexa Bliss. She starts off by telling us he's here and then we get a Fiend entrance. Now, The Fiend has probably one of the best entrances I've seen in such a long time. It's probably one of my favorite entrances. Probably in my top 10 of entrances, but I I think uh, The Fiend on Raw, it gives him a little more shine. SmackDown is just two hours, so now The Fiend has three hours to do whatever he wants. Then The Fiend appears. Him and Alexa Bliss then join hands. We then see Retribution come out, and I'm like, okay, what's gonna happen? The Fiend and Alexa Bliss are just still standing in the middle of the ring, emotionless, just with a blank stare. We see retribution then surround the ring they end up going inside of the ring and still not a move not a flinch not anything from the fiend and alexa bliss then the lights go off and he and alexa bliss vanishes and retribution is just looking around like where'd he go where'd he go and next thing you know we hear the hurt business music come and then the hurt business end up in the ring and a brawl ensues we see the hurt business get the best of retribution i also want to point out that retribution got a theme song i, I don't really know who it's by I didn't find it so good. I didn't wasn't a fan of that theme. Maybe they could have went like a different direction with their song, but go listen to the song they have now. I'm pretty sure it's on YouTube and just tell me what you think. So the Hurt Business coming out wasn't just for nothing. They end up having a six-man tag, I believe it was, or an eight-man tag. No, it was an eight-man tag. We've seen a quick start from Bobby Lashley. We've seen Alexander then blind tag Bobby Lashley. I don't know if that was on purpose or if that like, are they branching apart? I don't know what happened there why that happened. We see Mason T-Bar distract Cedric to take control. We also seen a more aggressive Ali who then slams Cedric Alexander into the barricade. Then the Fiend and the Herpins just kind of face off because, you know, when someone's on the floor, someone steps down, then the other team, they start to clash. Then when these two teams face off, we see the Fiend pop up on the big screen and have his signature laugh. Raw then cuts to a commercial. They come back, Bobby Lashley's still in control. Bobby Lashley ends up tapping out T-Bar. Then the lights shut off. Then the Fiend appears on the side of Retribution. I thought that, like, that was a really good, like, play on it. I thought, like, he was going to side with Retribution because Retribution's mission is for change, but he ends up beating up Ali, throwing him off the apron, and then destroying the rest of Retribution. And mind you, these aren't small guys. These are big guys. T-Bar and Mace are big guys. So he's just tossing these guys around. He smacked Mace onto the announce table with a Uranagi like it was nothing. So Bray Wyatt, the Fiend, has such superhuman strength, it's ridiculous. Then he rolls Ali into the ring. He was gonna deliver a sister Abigail, but t T-Bar ends up taking the sister Abigail for Ali. Then the Fiend and the Hurt Business face off. And then we hear Alexa Bliss say, let him in. So what does this mean for the Fiend, Retribution, and the Hurt Business? Can we see the Fiend lead Team Raw somehow through Survivor Series against Retribution? We know Survivor Series is coming up pretty much after Hell in a Cell. So I don't know 
if they're trying to set up something big. I don't know if Retribution is going to have someone else or maybe the Hurt Business is going to fight Retribution at Survivor Series. Maybe they find a female superstar to go against Mia Yim. There's been a lot of talks that it should be Naomi and I completely agree. She's a strong independent women's wrestler and I think her with a faction would be really good for her because she can go heel and you know Retribution does need someone to take care of Mia Yim. After that we see Matt Riddle versus AJ Styles. We see AJ Styles has a new bodyguard and it's that guy from Raw Underground. I didn't get his name but uh, since Raw Underground if you didn't know was cancelled officially there will be no more Raw Underground. So I guess they needed something to do with that big security guard. He says Raw drafted a true leader. He says Raw was never Monday Night Rollins after he beat Rollins and Hardy in that triple threat. So we know last week there was a triple threat between Jeff Hardy, Rollins and AJ Styles. So AJ Styles is basically saying Seth Rollins never really ran the show. He was just running it because AJ Styles wasn't around. AJ Styles says this is the place that AJ Styles built. And uh, I mean, he hasn't really built it yet, but you know, he's going off that SmackDown slogan. We see AJ Styles security. He doesn't want to leave the ring. The ref tries to count out AJ, but the guard stops him. Then the ref begs him to leave. And I thought this was like, it was okay. It wasn't bad. It showed that this guard of AJ's is not one to play with. He's not one to mess around. Him grabbing the referee, I was surprised that the referee didn't just kick him out like he does everybody else. But he ends up leaving eventually. And then the match finally begins. We see Matt Riddle was in control early. Riddle was going to deliver a kick to AJ Styles, but the bodyguard stepped in his path, which allowed AJ to regain control. So we know that the bodyguard is there to help AJ to prevent things from happening to AJ. And he's also probably there to prevent him from losing. So that's pretty much what he's doing right now. So we've seen AJ Styles take advantage of this momentary distraction. Then later on in the match, we see both men then battle for control. And then they go to the top rope. Both men then knock each other off. Matt Riddle lands on the outside. And when he was about to get up, the bodyguard steps up. He balls his fist. And I guess Matt Riddle got a little scared. So he ends up getting distracted and rolling in the ring. And as soon as he rolled in a ring, AJ Styles hit him with an insiguri, then hit a Styles clash for the win. So we see AJ Styles' bodyguard playing a huge part in this match. We know that AJ Styles is going to use him to his advantage. I wonder if it's going to carry him to a championship match or something eventually down the line. After that, we got a recap of the rivalry between Drew McIntyre and Randy Orton, then followed by a Drew McIntyre interview. Drew addresses Orton personally. He says Orton is evil and selfish through the 20 years that he's been here. He knew that when he walked through those doors that he knew the person Randy Orton was. He says Orton has been in many cell matches, but he hasn't been in one yet at all, which is true. Drew McIntyre hasn't been in a cell match at all, and Randy Orton's been in plenty with Triple H, The Undertaker, guys like that. But Orton still doesn't have the advantage, Drew McIntyre says. He tells Orton that he'll show up at Orton's interview, which he know he has coming up later on. So we go over the fact that Drew McIntyre said that no matter when, where, or how, if they're in the same building, Drew McIntyre is going to end up beating him up. And I think that's probably what's going to happen throughout the night. After that, we see the Raw Women's Championship match, Lana versus Asuka. We know Lana got this match by winning the Battle Royale last week and eliminating her former boat partner, Natalia. Asuka, she just started taunting early. Lana then had her 10 seconds of fame. Then Lana gets caught in the Asuka lock and Asuka retains the championship. It was a pretty simple match. I think they just wanted to give Lana something for her, you know, taking a shot through the table every week so far. So maybe they just wanted to reward her with doing that spot. After the match, we see Nia and Shayna Baszler attack Lana. Lana then gets put through a table once again.
again. So she got her championship match and now she's back to going through tables. Then Asuka fends off Shayna Baszler and Nia Jax. So I'm not sure what they're trying to allude here. Are they going to allude that maybe Nia Jax or Shayna Baszler will soon have to fight each other to get the rights to fight Oscar for that Raw Women's Championship? I don't know what direction they want to go in with that story, but that's, that's pretty much what I feel like they're going to do. They're going to have those two battle each other to fight Oscar for the Raw Women's Championship. We then see Nia cut a promo. She says her and Baszler are working well. She says that they run the tag team division on all brands, then says if someone disagrees, they should step up. Then we see Mandy and Dana come out, followed by Lacey Evans, and let me tell you, this is where I got disappointed. We see Peyton Royce come out, then the Riot Squad. So, why I got disappointed was that the Iconics were broken up. They wanted to keep Peyton away from Billy. They wanted to have her have her own singles run and not tag team run. But now you're putting her with another tag team partner in Lacey Evans? It just doesn't go. It just doesn't make any sense. What was the point of you breaking up the Iconics if you were just going to shove her in another team? So, I thought that's completely stupid i don't agree with this team and i hope this is just a one night thing just to fill in for the missing teams that there are so we end up having an impromptu fatal four-way tag team match between all four of these teams we see chaos early all women take turns just taking out one another to the outside Liv morgan then gets the hot tag she attacks naya then lacy blind tags naya Liv then drops lacy after Liv and ruby do their tag finisher when they look like they're about to win Shayna baszler then drags out ruby riot then puts a sleeper on her once again. We know last week that Shayna Baszler locked on that sleeper to Ruby Riot, and Liv Morgan couldn't do nothing but sit there and cry. Shayna Baszler then rolls Ruby Riot back into the ring so that way Nia Jack can tag Ruby's lifeless body. Then Nia Jax comes in, dominates. She ends up putting a Samoan drop on Lacey Evans to pick up the win. So we see Nia and Shayna work perfectly together. They're on top of the women's tag team division. I don't see anybody really stopping them right now. There's not really a good team on Raw or SmackDown to take them out. Maybe NXT can come up with some people. Maybe Raquel Gonzalez and Rhea Ripley will like hash it out at Halloween Havoc and then realize that they're more alike than they think. And then they go after the women's titles. That's what I would do. Just because those are two dominant women and there's two dominant women on Raw in Nia Jax and Shayna. And I think that would be a really good match between those women. After that, we see a live performance by Elias. After the concert, Elias was going to leave and then he decided he wanted to give us an encore. And mind you, it wasn't a bad song. It was a pretty good song. I enjoyed it. Well, I listened to the album. Maybe. Maybe I'll just give it a chance. I think he's a really good uh, artist, so I probably will give it a chance. So, he asked for his guitar, which was taken from him by, you know, someone who takes the, the, the equipment off stage. And then we see a person covered in all black. He plays a few chords. Then Elias gets upset. He says, this is my moment. This is not about you. He Then it's to reveal that it was Jeff Hardy, who then swings the guitar for the fences, but miss. And yells i didn't hit you man so we see jeff hardy like trying to plead with elias like listen i didn't hit you like you attacked me for no reason there is no reason why we should be going through this because i wasn't the guy who hit you with the car it was sheamus well he didn't say sheamus but we know who it was so i guess they're gonna keep playing off this feud for a while elias believes that it was jeff hardy even if he didn't hit him with the car he feels like he played some part in his injury after that we see tucker approach the miz and morrison he challenges them to a tag team match with a mysterious partner. Elias then after challenges Jeff Hardy to a match at Hell in a Cell. So it looks like Tucker will be bringing in the mystery opponent tonight to go against Miz and Morrison. And I don't know. I don't know if there's really any guys who could really pair with Tucker. But you know, you'll be surprised when you find out who his mystery tag partner is because I sure wasn't. After that, we see 
seen Kofi Kingston versus Sheamus. The New Day, they come out, they cut a promo, they talk about their split. Sheamus then interrupts and says, the New Day is now only two thirds of the tag team champions. And Corey Graves is like, yeah, they're two thirds. But you know, Sheamus has that strong Irish accent. So he was trying to say thirds. He says that Big E was a crucial part of their group. And now that since he's not around, they'll end up on the end of two bro kicks. And then New Day begin to mock Sheamus. They begin to call him names and all this other stuff. We've seen Sheamus then go to the ring to start the match. Sheamus was in control early. He even catches Kofi Kingston in midair to slam him on the apron. And I want to point this out that he barely caught Kofi Kingston. If he didn't catch Kofi Kingston, Kofi Kingston would have hit so hard, it would have been an injury. So the match continues. We see the announcers then point out that Big E is in the virtual crowd. And we see Xavier Woods pointing. He's looking and he's like, Kofi, Kofi, he's in the crowd. He's in the crowd. So Kofi then begins to build momentum. So the match then goes back and forth from there. But Kofi then hits a trouble in paradise out of nowhere to pick up the win. So the power of positivity was on Monday Night Raw when Big E joined the virtual crowd. So I hope that this feud between Sheamus and the New Day is over. Sheamus can go do something else and focus on a title. Maybe he can fight Bobby Lashley for the US Championship. So that, that's just, that's an idea. Maybe they should go with that one. After that, we get an Ali promo. Ali says that the Hurt Business and The Fiend made a big mistake. He also reveals to us that he was the hacker months ago on Friday Night SmackDown. He says that WWE didn't know how to make money off someone named Mustafa Ali. He says Retribution's truth will be heard. And if anyone tries to stop it, they will be shut down. He also mentions that, you know, since he was the hacker, he has a lot of information that he could leak on certain superstars and certain people. And he says in due time, it will happen. After that, we've seen Miz and Morrison versus Tucker and his mystery tag team partner, El Gran Gordo, which ends up being Otis in a mask. Now, this costume looked very familiar to me. This reminds me of when Becky Lynch, you know, appeared in that same costume. I think it was against Mickey James at some pay-per-view. I can't remember. Don't quote me on that, but I know it was Becky Lynch. Now, my thing with this, all of you know that I hate this Otis, Miz, Morrison storyline BS. I don't know why they're continuing it. Otis should have been doing his own thing on SmackDown. Tucker should have been doing his own thing. Not continuing this feud. Why are you bringing Otis to Raw and a disguise to, to wrestle with his tag partner who broke up because of the draft? There's no sense in this storyline at all. And I just dislike it. But before the match, we've seen Titus walk up to the Hurt Business. He says, you know, I'm worldwide. I can help you guys. So we see Titus trying to join the Hurt Business. Then the Hurt Business says, you know, we're going to talk about it. MVP then says, oh, we talked about it. Titus says, that fast? He says, yeah, we come to a decision. No. And then they start to jump him. So the Hurt Business is more aggressive ever since this rivalry of retribution. We know that the Hurt Business has been really big for Raw in these past couple weeks. And I'm glad that they're more aggressive. I'm glad that they're not the friendly type, that they're just beating up whoever they want because that's what they do. We then see Miz cut a great promo on Otis. He talks about how Money in the Bank changed his career and that Otis is a joke and that he's making a joke out of everyone who ever held that briefcase. It's basically like he's spitting in the face of past winners. And I agree with The Miz, not because he's my favorite wrestler, but because that's the truth. You got this Money in the Bank on Otis and it doesn't mean anything. It, you know, they gave it to Baron Corbin at one point and then Baron Corbin ended up losing it because when he got he, he didn't he didn't do a cash in from behind he ends up getting rolled up I think by John Cena and then that's it and that was it Baron Corbin was supposed to you know make that make that good but he didn't they ended up taking it off him really quick before he could even get a chance to actually fend for the title and now with Otis they're just holding it on to him and holding it on 
down to him. And I just don't like it. I feel like that money in the bank should have not went to Otis. It should have went to someone who was more deserving of it. Yes, Otis was hot at the time because, you know, people liked Otis. But I don't think he's the money in the bank champion in my eyes. I don't see him holding the company on his shoulders again. Like I said last week, he doesn't deserve that opportunity. There's other guys out there who are deserving. It doesn't have to be the same guys like AJ Styles, you know, stuff like that. It doesn't have to be those guys. But there's other guys more deserving of Otis, you know, who could hold on to that money in the bank. And Morrison said he should. Morrison should should be holding it. He should have been in that match. You know, he came a little later on and uh, I think in time, I think a couple months after. But ever since Morrison comes back, all he has been is a joke character. Even if they didn't go to Morrison, there's a bunch of deserving guys on that roster who could get a title shot or make that name for themselves like a bunch of guys did. The Miz did it. The Miz made a name for himself off that Money in the Bank championship. He beat John Cena on the grandest stage of them all at WrestleMania. So this this Money in the Bank propels careers and I just don't see it doing anything for Otis's career. The Miz also goes on to say that he's held titles to prestige including the Intercontinental Championship. But then people booed him but they cheer for Otis because he's an underdog. And then he says he doesn't have what it takes to be a WWE superstar. So then Otis gets mad and he punches the Miz and they start to attack each other. So the match begins and Morrison is in control until Otis gets tagged in. Morrison breaks up Otis's pin. Then Tucker takes out Morrison. We see the Miz then take out Tucker to set up for the skull crushing finale. But then we see R-Truth come out with the 24-7 championship and he walks through the ring distracting the Miz. Why is R-Truth walking through the ring? Why couldn't he just walk around? You know, people complain about a lot of things, but I hate the 24-7 championship. I hate the segments it has. I don't think they're entertaining at all. There was no sense of you to ruin this match and have, you know, the Miz get distracted. Who then takes the loss to Otis because Otis hits the worm and a splash to win the match. So we got Otis picking up a win over the Miz because of distraction by R-Truth and the 24-7 championship, including Akira Tozawa and Drew Gulak, who's now apparently on the race for the 24-7 championship. So I I hope this storyline is over. I don't want to see this no more once again. I just really hope that they do something with the Miz and Morrison. If you want to break them up and have them feud for a title at some point or, you know, just, you know, dislike each other at some point, I'll take it. Other than that, I don't want to see Otis and the Miz anymore. After that, we get a Firefly Funhouse. The Fiend says he can't wait to make new friends on Raw and he's already off to a good start. He says he'll be a better friend to Rambling Rabbit because Rambling Rabbit complained to uh, the Fiend or Bray Wyatt that he's always, you know, taking the bad end of the stick and he's always getting beat up or eaten by Mercy the Buzzard. Then the Fiend or, you know, I, I don't know why I keep calling him the Fiend at when he's Bray Wyatt. I'm just so used to it. But Bray Wyatt says, you know what? You're right. I'll treat you better. I'm really sorry. And then, you know, you think things are going to go really well. And then we see Mercy the Buzzard then attack Rambling Rabbit once again. So the Fiend, oh, I did it again. See, there you go. Bray Wyatt, you know, didn't keep his promise to Rambling Rabbit. Then we hear a knock at the door and we see Alexa Bliss. So Alexa Bliss now joins the Firefly Funhouse. Not only is she with the Fiend hand to hand, she is now a part of the Firefly Funhouse. I just love this segment. I love the storyline. I've said this a thousand times. Alexa Bliss in this character, she is fantastic. She's better than I've ever seen. And I think she should fight Oscar for the Raw Women's Championship and have the Fiend fight, uh, who, who's the, who's the, cha- look at that. I don't even know the champion of Raw. Oh, Drew McIntyre. There you go. It's because he's so busy, uh, fighting Randy Orton. You get distracted by it. At, at a point, it doesn't even come about the title anymore. It's about their, their pride and their futures. Um, so, uh, 
like I said, I, I think Alexa Bliss should challenge for the Royal Women's Championship. She's doing fantastic. And I'm, I'm interested to see how they continue to progress this storyline. After that wonderful segment, we move on to our main event of the evening in Braun Strowman versus Keith Lee. And this is a sanctioned match. It's not unsanctioned. So there are rules in this match. We see Strowman in control early. He attempts a power slam, but his injuries from Roman Reigns play a factor, allowing Keith Lee to take control. So we know that Roman Reigns destroyed Braun Strowman last week. And those steel chair shots, you know, did hurt Braun Strowman a lot. So we knew that was going to play a factor eventually, even if it wasn't in this match. We see Strowman then low blow Keith Lee with his head when he was trying to get up for a pin. And then he hits him with a big boot and gets the win. Stupid, stupid, stupid. That was the dumbest thing ever. Like, I understand that maybe he was trying to steal a tactic from Roman Reigns because we know how when Roman Reigns kicks out of a, you know, a pin attempt, he does a low blow when he comes up from breaking out of a pin. But now we see Braun Strowman do it. And even the announcers mentioned it. I, I don't think that this should have happened if you were going to end it like this it should have never happened we then see keith lee after the match turn braun Strowman around and kick him in the gonads he then claims to be some monster but then he's taking shortcuts what that's what keith lee says to braun Strowman, and he's right you're supposed to be the monster among men but you're sitting low blowing people that that doesn't make you the monster among men that just makes you like every other heel that there is and i I just think it's stupid i thought this match was stupid they're going to continue this rivalry if it goes to hell in a cell put it inside of hell in a cell and let them two kill each other and then end this because you could be doing so much better things with keith lee than having him lose to a low blow and a big boot how many people get big boot in the wwe and then kick out like you have keith lee end up losing to a big boot that was dumb stupid angle stupid segment terrible main event after that we see randy orton cut his promo randy orton makes his way to the ring he then locks the cell door behind him i guess he wants to make sure drew mcintyre couldn't get in he talked about his past matches inside hell in a cell he even talked about recalling the match that which he earned the undertaker's respect then we see drew mcintyre come out he tries to open the door but since randy chained it he couldn't open the door we see drew mcintyre then pull out bolt cutters from behind the barricade he opens the door and says now you're mine and then raw goes off air so raw leaves you in suspense like "Mm, what happened during that altercation did drew mcintyre end up beating up randy orton what happened you know they're playing it they're playing like with your head they're like you know what we're gonna leave it at that and then when hell in a cell comes they're gonna see what happens inside that hell in a cell so i guess it was a good play you know a good way to end raw you know have us like thinking like hmm, what's happening in there right now so i i i was pretty much you know happy with that the way that promo ended so that ends it for raw raw tonight was was really good it wasn't that bad the only thing i really hated was the miz and morrison and otis and tucker and the keith lee and strum match i thought that was really dumb and I really hated those segments. But other than that, I thought Raw was really good. Drew McIntyre, this Randy Orton rivalry, it's really good. I know it's going to come to an end of Hell in a Cell. I'm excited for The Fiend and Alexa Bliss. I'm even happy that The Hurt Business and Retribution are now a part of this like Fiend world, this little storyline with The Fiend. And I, I, I hope that plays out really well because I see it playing out well. Like I said, The Hurt Business has been on top. Retribution has been a focal point. Uh, and The Fiend, he's just The Fiend. He's fantastic at what he does. And I think that if they come together in this storyline can be fantastic so now we're gonna move on to nxt uk nxt uk this week kicked off with any dennis versus oliver carter we've seen any dennis in control early then carter begins to build up some impressive offense oliver carter then goes for a 450 splash but dennis gets the knees up then he hits his big move for a near fall now i want to point out that oliver carter is 
is really impressive. He's a hell of a wrestler. This guy was doing such athletic things in that ring. I didn't even know he was capable of doing those things, but he definitely made a fan out of me tonight. And I'm just going to check out most of his matches. I'm going to see like well his past matches in other companies because I really like this guy and I think he could really be big in NXT UK. We then see Eddie Dennis placed at the top by Carter, but when Carter went up, Davis slid under him and hits him with the severed bridge to pick up the win. So we see Eddie Dennis pick up his first win on NXT UK in the BTS studio in London. Eddie Dennis then cuts a promo. He says that we know who attacked Flash Morgan Webster. He then invites Mark, Andrew, and Flash Morgan next week for a mediation. And then he says, bring your best friend or your so-called best friend. So is it possible that Mark Andrews attacked Flash Morgan Webster? I don't know. It's kind of a tricky situation. Maybe he did. We, we know that in WWE and wrestling in general, tag teams tend to betray each other at some point and maybe it was time for Mark Andrews to do what he had to do. So we see that they agreed to it next week. We got some breaking news earlier or later on in the show. They said that they agree. So next week we're going to see a mediation between Mark Andrews, Flash Morgan Webster, and Eddie Dennis. After that match, we got a video vignette of Joe Coffey. He's returning soon. He says he's coming back better than ever and he's going to bring more championships to Gallus. We also learned that Jordan Devlin returned next week, the real cruiserweight champion. That's how they addressed him and that's what he is to me. He's still the real cruiserweight champion. So I'm glad to see that Jordan Devlin is coming back. After that, we get Amelia versus Nina Samuels. We know Nina Samuels and Amelia were tag team partners last week, but Nina Samuels ended up, you know, walking off on her tag team partner, costing them the match. So if you didn't see this match coming, you should have seen this match coming. In the start of the match, we've seen Amelia get aggressive to start off. You know, she has all this pent up anger because Nina left her. She cost her the match. Nina then ended up taking control by using the top rope to hit Amelia in the neck. We then see Nina and Amelia, they fought for control. They were back and forth, back and forth until we see Nina hit the final act out of nowhere to pick up the win. So this match was a really good showing for Amelia. It was actually a really quick match, to be honest with you. I think it was like five, six minutes. But Amelia, you know, she was in the PWI's top 100 women. She is a really good wrestler, and we've seen that in this match, no matter how short it was. But we see Nina pick up the win. And what I said to myself was, Nina reminds you of Ginny, but in a better way. I think Ginny's boring, but I think Nina Samuels is really good. She's impressive. She looked very technical. She looked clean out there. And, you know, I see a future for her, and I see her going past Ginny in the in the women's division. And I, I think that that's who they should go with for now. She also then cuts a promo after backstage. She says, Piper Nevins, I have my eyes on you. So we know that Piper Nevins did fight Kaylee Ray for the UK Women's Championship and she didn't get the job done. So now Nina Samuels is trying to punch her ticket so she can face Kaylee Ray next after, you know, if she beats Piper Nevins. We don't know what's going to happen in that match. Piper Nevins could beat her or Piper Nevins could lose to her. And then after that, I say whoever wins that match gets the next title shot against Kaylee Ray. Now we move on to our final match of the night. It is Trent Seven versus Kenny Williams in the first round of the Heritage Cup tournament. We know that Kenny Williams won that triple threat match to be a part of this tournament. So I'm really looking forward to see what he does, you know, to show why he deserved to be in this tournament. In round one, we see both men feeling each other out. It even got faster the last minute of the round, but there was no pinfalls. In round two, we seen a faster paced round and both men sparked good offense, but once again, there was still no pinfall. In round three, both men showed a technical style. Then in the last 10 seconds, Trent hits the seven style lariat to pick up the first fall. Now we move on 
on to round four where Kenny Williams is down one point. We've seen him in desperation to pick up a fall. He ends up trying various pin attempts. He ends up getting one to pick up his first fall. So his roll-up attempts and all his pin attempts actually worked. I didn't think they were going to work, but they actually did. So now we're tied up at 1-1 apiece. In round five, both men exchange shots to open up the round. William hits his finish but gets a near fall. Then both men attempt to hit their big shots, but no one gets a fall at all. Trent ends up going to the top rope, but William stops it. He goes for a hurricanrana, but then Trent's used his own momentum against him and rolls him up for the win. So we see Trent pick up the win using Kenny Williams' momentum off that top rope. And I thought that was pretty unique. I didn't think that he was actually going to roll him up after that hurricanrana, but he did. So now we see Trent versus Dave Mastiff in the second round semifinals of the Heritage Cup tournament. And I think it's going to be a really good match. We know that Dave Mastiff knocked out Joseph Connors. I believe it was in the second round to pick up his win. I don't think he's going to do that with Trent Seven, but I feel like that's going to be a really good match. After that, we go to a contract signing between Ilja Dragunov and Walter. We see both men make their entrance. Sid Scala then says to both men, you know, let's get the business out of the way. Walter signs the contract. Sid Scala asks him, does he have anything to say? Walter says he has no comments. Ilya Dragunov then signs the contract. He was asked the same question Walter was. He then stands up and was about to say his catchphrase, Ubazingbar, but Walter then smacks him. Then Walter begins to chop away after those brutal chops. Then he tries to powerbomb Ilya Dragunov through the table, but Dragunov fights it off. We see Walter look like he was going to retreat, but Ilya wasn't going to let that happen. He ends up trying to dive on Walter from the top rope, but Walter just chops him out of the air and then delivers more vicious chops. We've seen officials then step in. Both men would not quit. Then Ilya Dragunov breaks Walter through the barricade. He then gets to his feet first. Walter's still on the ground. He picks up Walter's UK championship. He flaunts it. He showcases it like, I'm next. I will be champion. And then throws it at Walter. And Walter just tries to just go off on him. But the officials didn't allow that to happen. I just want to say there is so much hype behind this match. I am so excited for this match. I have been a big fan of Ilya Dragunov for a while. I've been a big fan of Walter. And these two are going to put on a hell of a match. It's going to be a takeover style match. And I just can't wait for it. There's a lot of hype behind it. They're building it up. They're doing everything right to make sure that people want to see this match. But I also want to point out that how much heart does Ilja Dragunov have? Do you see this man taking the most vicious chops I've ever seen in my life and just getting back up like he didn't just get destroyed? We also see in the effects of those Walter chops. You know, when Walter ripped off his shirt, Ilja Dragunov still had Walter's handprint and a bruised chest from last week. And then for him to take more chops, what damage does that do to Ilya Dragunov's chest? It looked terrible after, you know, after Walter did all that damage in this segment. I think that maybe he should stop taking those chops for a while until their match happens. Or just stop taking Walter chops in general because clearly they're having an impact. Uh, well, that ends UK. I think UK was really good this week. I really enjoyed it. It's been good for its hour show. It gives you three matches, some good promos, some great backstage segments. I think NXT UK is on the right path. Tune in next week for Ilya Dragunov versus Walter for the NXT UK Championship. I promise you it's going to be a main event you are not going to regret watching. Now we're going to move on to NXT. NXT this week kicked off with Kushida versus the Velveteen Dream versus Tommaso Ciampa in a triple threat match. We've seen Tommaso Ciampa attack the Dream during his entrance. Then Kushida joins the attack. We know that Ciampa and Velveteen Dream have their beef because the Velveteen Dream cost Tommaso Ciampa 
Ciampa the match against Kushida. We've seen Tommaso Ciampa taking out both men to the outside early. Ciampa attacked the injured hand of the Velveteen Dream. We've seen Ciampa in control for a while until the Dream took control, but his showboating costed him and Tommaso Ciampa took back his control. Kushida then comes in a ring. He begins to attack the Dream. Then he locks the armbar onto the Dream on the outside. He then begins to attack Ciampa's arm. We see Kushida then target that arm of Ciampa once again. He then locks on an arm bar. You know, Tommaso Ciampa tries to fight out of it, but Kushida ends up locking it in anyway. We see Kushida then pull Tommaso Ciampa's arm as hard as he could, but then the Velveteen Dream hits a purple rainmaker from the top rope on Kushida and gets a near fall. And then we see Kushida ends up taking back his momentum. He hits two top rope topes on both the Dream and Ciampa, but when he tries to hit another tope, Tommaso Ciampa out of nowhere just hits him with the Willow's Bell. And this is three guys who are main eventers. These are takeover caliber men, and they're giving you a takeover caliber match. I think this is a really good match so far. We then see Ciampa go for the fairy tale ending, but Kushida shoves him off. He ends up getting shoved towards the rope where the Dream was getting on the apron, who ends up hitting Ciampa with his cast, knocking Ciampa out. Then Kushida rolls up Ciampa for the win. So we see the cast of the Velveteen Dream's injured hand play a factor in this match and it was used to knock out Tommaso Ciampa. So now I know that's going to piss off Ciampa even more that he got, you know, knocked out because of the cast of Velveteen Dream and it's probably going to piss him off more that he lost again to Kushida. So I don't know when they're going to save this match. They're probably going to do it at Halloween Havoc. Maybe they'll save this match for a takeover, but I know again, we're going to have this match again. Even if it's not a triple threat match, we're going to see Tommaso Ciampa versus the Velveteen Dream if Kushida decides to move on to do something else. After that, Adam Cole says he's still not medically cleared to compete, but Bobby and Strong, they will be the NXT Tag Team Champions, and they'll take those titles back for the UE. So, I think that, you know, if if Bobby Fish and Roddy take those titles off of Fandango and Tyler Breeze, I think that's going to be good for NXT. I think, you know, it'll be even better. They, these guys are really good. They're workhorses in their craft. They've been working hard for NXT since they got there. So, if they take off those titles, I would really be happy. No disrespect to Fandango or Tyler Breeze. They're really good wrestlers, but they just don't feel like tag team champions to me. They just don't bring that seriousness that those tag team titles should hold. After that, we get a Rhea Ripley and Raquel Gonzalez build-up video. You know, they're trying to play on this feud. They're trying to build it up. They want you to feel excited to see Raquel Gonzalez versus Rhea Ripley at Halloween Havoc. And I'm surprised that there's no stipulations. I hope it's not just a regular match. I hope they add some sort of stipulation throughout the weeks because Halloween Havoc is next week and I think this match deserves a stipulation since you know you're doing uh, a pay-per-view quality uh, TV show right now you know you should be doing stipulations for this match you should make it a street fight or something these are two women who truly want to destroy each other and prove who's the most dominant big woman in NXT so if we see a stipulation that'll be good if it's a regular match I mean I guess I can't complain they're both really good in-ring talents but like I said this match deserves a stipulation after that we get Jesse Kamea versus Ember Moon. This is her first match back in a long time, and this is her first singles match on NXT in a long time. We see Ember Moon wrestling a different style of wrestling. Ember Moon, she wasn't really high fly in this match. She was more technical doing multiple holds and submissions. So it's kind of interesting to see we're getting a different Ember coming back from that injury. Jesse Kamea tried to mount some offense, but Ember hits her with a code breaker from the top rope to then lock on a submission that she used to call the Red Wedding to tap out Jesse Kamea. So 
we see Ember Moon not do her eclipse. I wonder why is that? Is she trying to stick away from the high flying? Is she trying to do something else? I mean, I'm all for it. I'm all for people trying to improve their craft and work on something different. And she looked good doing it. I feel like she's worked on this since she's been injured. And I, I hope to see, you know, where this style of wrestling for her goes in her future. But after the match, we see Dakota Kai attack Ember. Dakota Kai says, you can't just come in and jump the head of the line. You got to earn your way. And then Dakota Kai walks off. She is right. She does have to earn her way. I feel like Dakota Kai does have the right to face Io Shirai eventually for that uh, women's championship because she does have what it takes to be a champion. She's really good. You know, she took out Tegan Knox. She had really good matches with Shotzi Blackheart. She deserves a championship match. Eventually down the line, maybe even she will be champion one day. After that, we're brought backstage to see that Bobby Fish was laid out. So the same guy who attacked Adam Cole attacks Bobby Fish. So what does that mean for our NXT Tag Team Championship match tonight? Will we see someone else step up to be Roddy's partner? Is Kyle O'Reilly medically cleared to be uh, the partner? And the answer is yes. Kyle O'Reilly is medically cleared. He will replace Bobby Fish in that NXT Championship match tonight against Breezango. After that, we get Austin Theory versus Bronson Reed. Bronson Reed was in control early until Theory countered him. He started to chop at the legs, the typical, you know, small guy to big man move. We see him then lock on a hold, but Bronson Reed took back his control with a power slam. We see Bronson Reed then head to the top rope to hit his tsunami splash, but Austin Theory ends up going to the top rope and trying to knock him off but Bronson Reed would not allow him to knock him off we see Austin Theory fall off and then run back up to the top rope but he eats a headbutt from Bronson Reed who then delivers the tsunami splash to pick up the win after the match we see Austin Theory take a mic he says I'm the future of this business then he challenges Bronson Reed to another match we see Bronson Reed then accept he goes under the rope and Theory attacks him immediately but that offense doesn't last too long for Austin Theory who ends up getting caught in a Samoan drop to lose once again. So Theory's lost two times in a row to Bronson Reed in the same night. And that's that's just a shocker. And that's just a, a kill to Austin Theory's career. Losing twice in the same night? He hasn't been on a win streak at all. He lost to Johnny Gargano last week. He lost to Dexter Loomis the week before. And now he loses to Bronson Reed twice in the same night. What's next for Austin Theory? Are they going to find something else for him to do? What is his next step. We head backstage where we learn that Casey Catanzaro has accepted Zaya Lee's open challenge. Zaya Lee then looked like she was stressed, like she was under so much pressure. She was like, this is the biggest match of my career. I have to win. And that's all she kept saying. She kept saying, I have to win. I have to win. What does Boa have over her? Why, why is now the sudden change of I have to? Like she looks like she's under so much stress and pressure. What, what does Boa, you know, what is he doing? What was in that letter? Is he manipulating? her? Does he have something that she wants? What's going through her head? I want to know. I'm interested to see where this storyline goes because I feel like if they play this correctly, it can go really well or it can go really bad. But the way they're going so far, it makes me interested to see what they have over Xia Lee's head. And I, I mean, Boa, not they because only one person. But I'm interested
interested to see on what he has over her head. After that, we go backstage once again. Austin Theory is leaving the arena. He gets in his car. He says he's done. He quits. So does that mean we'll see Austin Theory get off TV? Is Austin Theory really done with NXT? I don't know if this was a part of the segment. Will Austin Theory go away, reinvent himself, come back better than ever? I don't know what will happen next for his career. Like I said, he's a really good superstar. He has the potential. He's a former Evolve World Champion. He's good. He has all the credentials. I just don't know why they're packaging him the way they are. And I feel like if, you know, he takes some time off and reinvent himself, he can come back and he can be an NXT champion. There's no doubt in my mind. We move on to the next match of the night. It was Legado del Fantasma versus Isaiah Swerve Scott, Jake Atlas, and Ashanti the Adonis. We see Legado del Fantasma playing mind games early. Then the fight begins. All men begin to brawl. And I want to point out that in a, there was a spot in this match that just showed me how athletic that Jake Atlas is. He had Wild in like an old school spot. So you know how when Undertaker used to do the old school, he used to like tightrope on the ropes? Well, Jake Atlas did the same thing, but Santos Escobar tries to swipe his legs and he jumps and lands right back on the ropes with perfect balance. Like he never even left his feet. And I thought that was fantastic. He then jumps off the rope and hits an arm drag and a hurricanrana on uh, Joaquin Wild and Raul Mendoza. So we see that Jake Atlas is super athletic. This guy has a lot of potential. This guy can really be big in the, the, the world of professional wrestling. Not even NXT. This guy can go anywhere and probably put on a good match with anybody. We sing Legado del Fantasma then take control through picture and picture. But then when we come back from commercial break, we get a hot tag from Jake Atlas. We've seen Atlas catching Wild in a tope mid-air to turn it into a Spanish fly on everybody. So let me break this down for you. Joaquin Wild, he's going for regular tope. He's about to jump. As soon as he jumped, Jake Atlas catches him in a Spanish fly position to hit the move. That's freaking impressive. I didn't when I I had to watch it like three times just to see if he actually caught him. He caught him in mid-air while doing a backflip. That's just great athleticism from Jake Atlas. He impresses me every time I watch him. And he's had a really, really lot of good spots in this match. So we move to the end of the match where we see Santo Escobar take out Isaiah Swerve Scott with the suicide dive. Then Jake Atlas hits a cartwheel DDT off the announce table on Santos Escobar. He then begins to taunt him not realizing Adonis was oblivious to a blind tag from Raul Mendoza, which allows Raul Mendoza and Joaquin Wilde to place their tag finisher on Ashanti Adonis and go for the pin. We see Jake Atlas try to stop it, but he was unable to break up the pin. We've seen Legado del Fantasma pick up the win, and it was all because of the cockiness of Jake Atlas. Yes, you are impressive, but your cockiness just costs you the match, and I hope you realize that. And I'm sure now it's going to spark something between Ashanti Adonis and Jake Atlas. Maybe even uh, Isaiah Swerve Scott's going to get involved. Like, hey, listen, you showboated. You didn't need to, and now, you know, we lost this match. And remember, Jake Atlas wants the Cruiserweight Championship, so does Swerve, and so does Ashanti Adonis. So maybe down the line, we're going to see a triple threat match between these guys to determine the number one contender for Santos Escobar's Cruiserweight Championship. After this match, we get a Gargano segment. They're practicing for their spin the wheel stipulation. You know, it was announced last week that they have to spin the wheel and they'll tell them what match stipulation they'll have to go through. We see Johnny take a turn at spinning the wheel. He gets a buried alive match. He gets upset. He says, this wheel hates me. Then Candice LeRae gets a street fight. She's like, I've never lost in a street fight. I'm sure I can beat Io Shirai in this. Then Johnny gets upset that she got a street fight, so he ends up spinning again, and he gets a casket match. 
sketch. He says that the wheel wants him dead and then he goes to bed because he's upset. So is it possible that we could see a casket match? Are they teasing a casket match? Are they teasing a buried alive match? We haven't seen those matches in years. So if we see those on Halloween Havoc between Johnny Gargano and Damian Priest, I think that is going to be crazy. And just to see that these matches make their return after so many years of it not being on, you know, a WWE show or WWE broadcast since The Undertaker and Kane. And I think that these match stipulations should be super fantastic. I hope whatever they land on, they kill it. And I'm sure Io Shirai and Candice LeRae are going to good match. They might even get a sleeper match. I didn't really take a look at the matches. I should have. I don't know why I never do. But no matter what stipulation they're going to get, I think it's going to be a really good match, both of those matches. Now we move on to the next match of the night. Killian Dane and Drake Maverick versus Everrise. We know Everrise, you know, have their beef with Drake and Maverick and vice versa. So we see Everrise in control over Maverick early. Killian Dane then gets the hot tag to change the tide. We see Killian Dane try to go for a choke slam. Then he ends up getting chop blocked by one of the members of Everrise, which brought Dane down. One of the members ended up locking on a single leg Boston Crab. Then we see on the outside another member of Everrise, Matt Martell, holding on to Drake Maverick. He was taunting him and forcing him to watch Killian Dane, you know, get strained by that single leg Boston Crab. Matt then tells, you know, Drake Maverick, you don't have any friends. He's not your friend. And then he just snaps and he starts hitting with a chair. He goes in the ring. He hits the other member of Everrise with a chair to get the DQ. And then after the match, he realizes that, damn, like I just got DQ'd. He thought he was going to get punched by Killian Dane, but he didn't. Killian Dane then congratulated him and says, where has this guy been? Then the music plays. Killian Dane thought about stopping it, but then he was like, you know what? This guy, he showed me a different side of him. I'm going to give this a chance. And he lets the music play and then they shoot off into the sunset. So do we see Drake Maverick and Killian Dane, you know, now become a team? Are they going to be whole? Will they go after the tag team titles eventually? I'm telling you, it's just like a team hell no thing. They, they, the team hell no was tag team champion. So I'm sure that we're going to see Killian Dane and Drake Maverick, the tag team champion someday. After that, we go backstage once again. We see Roderick Strong is now attacked backstage. He's laying on the ground lifeless. Who is attacking the UE? Now what happens to this NXT tag team title match that's supposed to happen tonight? Is Kyle O'Reilly supposed to find another partner? What happens? You know, they, you know, ever since, uh, what's his name, Rich Holland got injured, they've been trying to continue the storyline, and they're doing a good job. It's a mystery on who's attacking the UE. For those of you out there who think it's Kyle O'Reilly, I don't think it's Kyle O'Reilly. Why would Kyle O'Reilly want to attack his own members of the UE? He's had chances. He's never got robbed of any opportunities by Adam Cole, Roger Strong, or Bobby Fish. So there is no reason for him to attack his own team members. So we'll just have to wait. We then come back for commercial. We see William Regal standing with all the tag teams. We see him standing with Brizongo, Oni Lorcan, and Danny Burch, and Kyle O'Reilly. Kyle O'Reilly is like, you know, what am I supposed to do? We see Danny Burch and Oni Lorcan says, you know, you earned this title match. You you deserve it. Use one of us. And Kyle O'Reilly says, no, I'm going to the hospital with being my friends. And then we end up seeing Danny Burch and Oni Lorcan take the spot of the UE to go against Brizongo for the NXT Tag Team Championship. So that should be an interesting match. Uh, I don't think Brizongo is really prepared for Danny Burch and Oni Lorcan. You know, he watched them last week, but you can never really prepare for someone unless, you know, you know you're fighting them. And they thought they were fighting the UE and now they're fighting a whole different team. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens there. After that, we head back to the ring for Zia Lee versus Casey Katzenzaro. It was a back and forth contest, but Casey ended up getting the win via a unique pin. So this was a really quick match. I thought this 
this was going to be a squash for Zia Lee, but it wasn't. It was more of a Casey show. So Zia Lee losing, what happens now? Does Boa, like, you know, whatever he's holding over her head, like, make it worse for her? But after the match, we see Zia Lee then attack Casey Catanzaro. Caden Carter then tries to come to the rescue, but Zia Lee ends up attacking her too. So then we see another attack by Raquel Gonzalez, who comes out to destroy all the women. She ends up taking the mic and says, this is a warning to you, Rhea Ripley. And, you know, she, she did send the good warning. She took out three three superstars, and that, that's a pretty good warning to me. So, like I said, this match is really being built up, and I think it's going to be a really good match. After that, we head backstage once again. Grimes is being told that his match stipulation with Dexter Loomis is a haunted House of Terror match. And and Cameron Grimes, he looks frayed. He's like, wait, wait, what? what? What match is this? This is a haunted House of Horror match? And then she axes him. I don't know her name. I should figure out her name. She's like, are you afraid? He's like, me? <laughs> I mean, I'm not afraid of anybody. And then you see Dexter Loomis pop out from behind the door and he's just staring at him through the glass door. Uh, Cameron Grimes didn't even notice he was there and Dexter just had his eerie eyes locked in the Grimes. I wonder what the Haunted House of Terror is going to be. Is it going to be like, um, you know, the deletion match with Matt Hardy? Uh, you know how they have like a cinematic type match or a boneyard type match? That cinematic feel? I wonder if that's how they're going to go about this match. Then we head back to the ring for a live Thatcher Thatch Camp demonstration. We see Thatcher, you know, try to show up his student, Anthony, who he kept calling Andrew and Alex and all these other names. We see him tell his student to just go for it, you know, show me what you really got. And then he goes, he locks on a Kimura lock onto his student and his student's tapping, he's tapping, he's tapping and he doesn't let go, which pissed off and with pissed, oh look, I almost called him Andrew, which pissed off Anthony. He didn't like it at all. Timothy Thatcher says, you know, you'll never take me off my feet. You know, let me show you a wrist lock now. And then Anthony holds out his hand and he's like, all right. And then he just sweeps Timothy Thatcher off his feet and puts him in a chokehold. And Timothy Thatcher did not like that at all. And he started to just beat on him. Then he calls in the referee. And then we have an impromptu match between Timothy Thatcher and Anthony where Thatcher just dominated. He ended up tapping out his student, Anthony, and that was it. So Timothy Thatcher got shown up a little bit. I don't know if that was really good for him, but you know, Anthony, he did show him up and no one's really showing up Timothy Thatcher during his thatch camps. You know, he's really aggressive during those things. He likes to hold those submissions after people tap. So he got a little taste of his own medicine. So I kind of like that segment a little bit. Now we move on to the main event with Breezango versus Oni Lorkin and Danny Birch, who will now be known as One Two Punch. That's their tag team name. I don't know if they came up with that or WWE came up with that, but they're the One Two Punch now. So this match was for the NXT Tag Team Championships. We seen Fandango get the best early to start this match. Breezango was more serious in this match. They they were more aggressive. They were more focused. Fandango did his little hip swerve in the beginning, but other than that, they were more focused. They they didn't take anything. The joke stopped after that first little uh, hip thrust by uh, Fandango. Later in the match, we see Danny Birch slam Tyler Breeze into the barricade, but that control only lasted for so long until Tyler Breeze pulled Danny by the legs into the ring post. So we see a little dirty move from Breezango. I didn't think we'll see that out of them. We see Breezango had control through picture and picture until Oni Lorcan fought off Fandango to make the hot tag to Danny Birch. But Breezango would not let Oni and Danny build any momentum. This match was all Breezango. I didn't think it was going to be such a dominant match for Breezango. They didn't let Danny or Oni do any like type of momentum building moves. So I thought that was a good play on Breezango. Let them be more aggressive. Take away the jokes. Let them be a tag team. Real tag 
tag teams don't need to be joking constantly. They're just like all jokes. They come out every week in a different costume. I don't. I feel like they didn't take the tag team championship seriously. But now in this match, you know, it proves me otherwise that they can be a serious tag team. We see Fandango hit a single leg drop off the top rope, which is his finishing move. But Danny Burch ends up kicking out of it. The end sequence of this match was Fandango was going up to the top rope to deliver his leg drop until a guy in a mask pushes Fandango off the top rope. Then Danny Burch hits Tyler Breeze with a low blow behind the ref's back. They hit their tag finisher to become the new NXT Tag Team Champions. So we see that Danny Burch and Oni Lorcan used underhanded tactics to win the Tag Team Championships. So now, are we going to say that Danny Burch and Oni Lorcan had this plan from the start? Were they attacking the UE? But then you see the mystery man slide in the ring. He's laughing. He raises the hand of Oni and Danny and takes off the mask and it turns out to be Pat McAfee. So it turns out Pat McAfee was behind all the attacks of the UE. We know him and Adam Cole had their rivalry in the past. Adam Cole did beat him at TakeOver and now Pat McAfee is back to make sure that the UE's lives is hell. So now I'm interested to see what happens in this little heel alliance between Birch and Oni and Pat McAfee. Will the UE get their revenge next week? Will everybody be okay? I'm pretty sure they will but I'm interested to see where this storyline goes. I thought it was going to be stupid. It, you know, it was supposed to be Ridge Holland, but I guess they, you know, they changed it because he got hurt to Pat McAfee, which is not bad because they did have a little good rivalry. So next week, we'll have to wait to see what happens. Maybe Adam Cole will come back. But that concludes NXT for this week. NXT was, NXT was pretty good this week. I won't lie to you. I actually liked it. I thought it was a really good. I enjoy seeing that there's new tag team champions. Oni and Danny do deserve it. They've been fighting in the tag team division for a while. They ended, they were fighting each other at one point. Uh, then they became a tag team, which I thought was pretty cool. Uh, I want to see where Austin Theory goes from here. Will Bronson Reed finally get a North American Championship match? And what happens to Kushida, Velveteen Dream, and Tommaso Champion? Will this rivalry continue? Will it play off into a takeover? Will it go one-on-one? There's a lot of stuff that they could do with most of their stories that they played on tonight. So I'm really interested in to see where it goes. So now we're going to move on to AEW Dark, which I actually watched this week. The first match of the night was Sean Spears versus Christopher Daniels. We've seen both men exchanging holds and taunts early. Then, late match, we've seen Sean Spears go for a C4, but Daniels counters it, allowing Daniels to take control. He then tries to attempt an Angel's Wing, but Spears counters. Then Spears attempts an Irish Whip who reverses. Then Spears launches Daniels over the top rope. Then Christopher Daniels tries to hit a springboard on Sean Spears, who ends up catching him in the C4 position. He ends up hitting the C4 to win the match. After the match, he places another C4 on Christopher Daniels. Then he walks away, but then he realizes, like, you know what? I haven't done enough. And then he loads up the glove. But then Scorpio Sky makes the save by appearing inside the ring by the time Sean Spears turns around. Then we see Sean Spears use that glove on an AEW worker. So we know that Sean Spears and Scorpio Sky have been feuding. So what better way to get at Scorpio Sky than by beating up one of his fellow SCU brethren? And I can't wait till this feud actually starts and they fight because I think it's going to be a really good match. After that, we've seen Brandy versus Kylan King. We've seen a technical start from both women. Then we see John Silver comes out and he has a sign that says he wants to be on a shot of Brandy. So are we going to see John Silver on an episode of Shot of Brandy with all the history that, you know, the Rose family and the Dark Order has? It's yet to be seen. I'm pretty sure they're going to have him. He's such a big hit and why not put him on the show? After that, we've seen Brandy then reverse Kylan King's Irish whip to then hit a shot of Brandy out of nowhere 
to pick up the win. So we see Kylan King lose several times, but let me tell you, she's super impressive. And I won't be mad if they sign her, you know, make her like a star. The AEW can make Kylan King a star. She does it on her own. She's great at technical wrestling. She's good at countering. She's a really good wrestler. And I don't say that a lot about, you know, a lot of female superstars because some of them just do it just to do it. But there's some who practice their craft and she's one of those people who practice her craft and she's really good. So I hope to see her be big in AEW and if not AEW, somewhere else. Not, not, you know, you don't have to stay in these main brands, these mainstream brands to be big. Look at Warhorse. Look at Danhausen. Look at these guys who aren't on that big platform but have a huge following just because independent wrestling is so huge. So she can make a name for herself anywhere. After that, we see David Ali versus Ricky Starks. We've seen a quick flurry from Ali, but Ricky stops it quickly with a spinning backdrop. Then stays aggressive, keeping Ricky in control the whole time. Ricky then knocks Ali off the turnbuckle, who tried to mount some offense. Then he gives him a running boot wash to hit the Rochambeau for the win. Um, in this match, David Ali, he, he had a good start, but Ricky Starks is just becoming an up-and-comer in AEW. He's becoming that superstar that they need. And I've been loving Ricky Starks. And the revolution is televised indeed because that man is showing you why he deserves to be where he is today. After that, we get Scorpio Sky versus Fuego Del Sol. We see a more technical side of Scorpio Sky, just like Ember Moon on NXT. You know, she's usually a high flyer. You know, she, he he was more technical this, this week on AW Dark. And I kind of like that from Sky. You know, he stuck away from the high flying. He wanted to show a more, a more aggressive, a different style that he could wrestle Sean Spears, that he could wrestle circles around Sean Spears. We also seen Fuego Del Sol. He had some offense. You know, Fuego Del Sol has been back a couple times. If you watch Sammy Guevara's blog or if you watch BTE, you see Fuego Del Sol a lot. But in this match, he was very sloppy. And, you know, I, I know he's still young. He still has a lot of time to grow. But in this match, he was super sloppy. There was times where he had really good moves, but there was more sloppy moments than there were good moments. We see Fuego Del Sol go for a drop kick in the end of the match. But Scorpio Sky ends up catching him out the air in sharpshooter position to tap out Fuego Del Sol. Then after the match, Sean Spear music then hits, but he's nowhere in sight. So let the mind games begin. Sean Spears is now trying to live in Scorpio Sky's head rent free. And I don't think it'll work. But then again, you know, anything could happen. After that, the next match was Aaron Solo versus Luchasaurus. Aaron Solo tries to go on offense early, but Luchasaurus stops his offense. Aaron even goes for a clothesline and it doesn't even phase Luchasaurus. He just stands there. We've seen Solo then build up some momentum. He went for a dive on Luchasaurus, but Luchasaurus just smacked him out the air. That's what they tried to perceive it as. He didn't. Luchasaurus almost didn't catch him and he almost fell. The end spot of this match, we've seen Luchasaurus build up a flurry. He hits a tail whip, then a choke slam, then hits the moonsault for the win. So we see Luchasaurus pick up another win on AEW Dark. I want to know, do you guys see Luchasaurus going for a main title? Do you see him AEW World Champion? Do you see him a TNT Champion? I think the only thing I really see him as is a tag team champion. I don't really see him as the singles competitor that some people try to perceive him as. Yes, he's really good. Don't get me wrong. He is fantastic, but I don't see him holding any of those major titles. Maybe eventually down the line, they might give him an even bigger singles push, but right now, he just has tag team titles in my future. Like in my vision, he's just going to be a tag team champion. The next match on the card was Butcher and the Blade versus Brian Pillman Jr. and Griff Garrison. We've seen Blade in control of Garrison early. Then Butcher comes in and he and Pillman exchange shots, but Butcher gets the upper hand. Obviously, no one's going to get the upper hand on Butcher. That is a big man. We see Butcher and the Blade in 
control for a long time till Pillman Jr. hits a crossbody, then gives Garrison a tag who takes control, but it was only for a few seconds before Butcher and the Blade counter their tag team offense and hit the full death on Griff Garrison for the win. So this is another win for Butcher and the Blade. We know they were supposed to win because they had that fatal four-way tag match coming up on Dynamite. So I know that most of these matches, you know, the people who are in the tournament, the people who are in that uh, number one contenders four-way match, they're going to be the ones winning tonight. That's the focal point. It's just the tune-up matches for the big show Dynamite. After that, the next match was Penta El Cero M versus QT Marshall. This was a quick start. No one was able to take control until QT goes for a dive and Penta stops it. QT began to build a little momentum later on in the match, but Penta had an answer for everything QT threw. Then out of nowhere, we see Eddie Kingston come out with a mic and then that distracts QT for a little bit and it allows Penta to go for a package power driver, but QT ends up countering it. Then both men go for a clothesline. They don't knock each other down. Then they hit stereo kicks which ends up knocking each other down. So both of these men had a really good exchange in the ring so that way this next segment could happen. Eddie Kingston distracts QT by bringing out Allie who is back to the bunny. She is no longer part of the Nightmare family. She is back to who she came to AEW as and that is the bunny. So I'm glad to see that now they're moving back to that original character and pairing her with Butcher and the Blade and it's a good thing for her because I think the Nightmare family and the whole QT angle was terrible. You know the whole love story thing. Now she's back to the aggressive Allie and that's what I want to see. We see QT then kick out of a big move by Penta and then the same thing happens for Penta. So both of these men are exchanging big moves but nobody can pick up the win. We see Penta finally hit a Canadian Destroyer then a package pal driver for the win. So Penta El Cero M picks up the win tonight on AW Dark. After that we get Jungle Boy versus KTB. I don't know what KTB stands for. I think everybody that was watching and even the commentators I believe Taz was trying to figure out what KTB stands for. I don't know what it stands for. Uh, but we see a lightning quick start from Jungle Boy. Then KTB knocks him off the top rope to mount some offense. KTB impressively, he looked good in this match. I thought he was going to be a flop, but no, he was actually really good. He, he mounted some really good offense. He had a lot of good counters to Jungle Boy. And I think that, you know, he showed out tonight on Dark and that's what Dark is. Dark is that platform. So you can showcase your skills. You can show people like, hey, listen, I'm not here just to be here. I'm here because I'm good at what I do and he proved he's good at what he does we seen Jungle Boy then retake control until KTB stops it then KTB tries to go for a moonsault but Jungle Boy moves then he hits KTB with an elbow from behind then goes to the top rope to hit his diving knee stomp for the win so Jungle Boy picks up the victory over KTB this week we know Jungle Boy faces Wardlow in the first round of that tournament and you know I would love to see Jungle Boy as a champion just not yet Wardlow hasn't really had that shine so Wardlow is my pick for that first round against Jungle Boy. After that we've seen Diamante and Ivelisse versus Kenzie Page and Skylar Moore. We've seen Diamante and Ivelisse attack Kenzie and Skylar before the match even started until they began to mount some offense. We've seen a back and forth matchup but then the end spot is where I kind of dislike the matchup. We've seen Diamante hit I think it was Kenzie Page or Skylar. I, I forget which one it was. They end up getting kicked and that was the finish of the match. Like 
like a kick stopped the match. Now I know there's kick finishers out there just like Aleister Black and stuff like that. But this looked like a normal kick. It didn't look like anything special and it ends up knocking out uh, Kenzie Page. So, you know, they, they, they're they going off this tag team with Diva Monte and Eva Lee's with no tag team titles. There's no nothing. There's no need for this tag team. They won the tag team tournament. Break them apart. Have them do single stuff. We don't need these tag team matches anymore with these two. If you want to keep it going on Dark, fine. But if you're going to have them on Dynamite, have them do singles matches and not the tag matches. After that, we see Bishop King versus Colt Cabana. We seen Colt Cabana come out with no Dark Order. He kept looking for them, which I found kind of strange because usually he doesn't really want them around. But this time, he wanted them around. He just kept looking back and forth. You know, during the start of this match, both men was evenly matched. Then later on in the match, we see the Dark Order come out and it distracts Cabana. Then he sends them to the back. Then he regains control of the match. And then when he's about to end the match, the Dark Order come out, which caused a distraction. But Colt Cabana was able to then counter King Senton, and he uses his Superman pin for the win. So we see the Dark Order and Colt Cabana in like a little, a little battle. You know, they almost cost him the match. They didn't come out with him. When he sent Alex Silver and, no, wait, wow. When he sent Alex and Silver to the back, they came back out and they didn't even care. You know, I think that, you know, they're now showing the cracks in Dark Order since Brody Lee lost that TNT championship, especially with Colt Cabana, who was brought in by Mr. Brody. So it's interesting to see where the Dark Order and Colt Cabana will land in the future. After that, we get Adam Priest versus Alan Angels, also known as Fives of the Dark Order. The Dark Order comes out with Alan Angels. I don't know why they came out with him and not Colt Cabana, but I guess, like I said, this, they're going to play on this eventually. We see Alan's attack quickly. He was in control the whole match. We've seen Priest mount a little bit of offense, but Angel shuts it down. Then we see Angels hits his twig snapper to pick up the win. I thought that was a unique uh, a unique name for it because he takes your arms, he pulls them back, he puts his foot in the middle of your back, and then slams down it. So your arms are just going back, and then your spine is just coming forward. So I guess it's a pretty creative finisher for somebody who uh, is as small as Alan Angels. But don't sleep on Alan Angels. He's impressive. Excalibur and Taz kept saying that Mr. Brody Lee knows how to pick, you know, recruits. And I, I, I agree with that because Preston Vance 10 is fantastic. Alan Angels is really good. He's a great high flyer. Silvers and Reynolds, they were a good tag team. And Anna Jay is fantastic. Evil Uno and Stu Grayson, there is no need to discuss them because they are great as a tag team. And I want them to win the tag team championships. They just haven't got the chance to win them yet. After that, we've seen Jack Evans versus Frankie Kazarian. This match started off really slow pace no one was able to take control until helico hit kaz from behind for jack evans to take control so we see angelico get involved in this match early we knew he would we knew jack evans wasn't just gonna bring out angelico just to watch we knew obviously he was gonna get involved i'm surprised frankie kazari didn't bring out any scu members but we've seen evans you know he had some unique offense this guy does flips this guy does submissions this guy's an excellent high flyer he's probably one of the top high flyers in the world i i i I, I could say that. There's a lot of really fantastic high flyers, but I don't think you can mention a lot of high flyers without mentioning Jack Evans' name in that conversation. We see Kaz then take control. Then Angelico tries to get involved, but Kaz knocks him off the apron out of his shoes. Late in the match, we see Evans go for a moonsault DDT, but Kaz counters it into a reverse DDT of his own to pick up the win. Then we see Angelico attack Kaz from behind and locks in his ankle lock submission. And for a second there, I thought no one was going to make the saves, but you've seen old Christopher Daniels come out, and the way he runs is so, he runs like an old guy, and I think it's pretty funny, but Christopher Daniels ended up 
making the save to Kazarian. Then we seen Dark Order versus D3, Baron Blade, and Louis Valley. Reynolds tried to recruit Valley, but he ends up turning it down. So Reynolds clocks him, but Valley shows fire out of nowhere to take control. And then when he tags Baron, the Dark Order regain control. Now I want to take a second. Louis Valley, I've never heard of him. This is my first time watching him, and he was impressive in this match. He was the star of this match, and I think that he has a good future. You know, he's a small guy, but you know how you know how wrestling companies treat small guys. So his talent will probably go unnoticed because of his height. But in this match, he he was really good. He even had some good moments with John Silver. They had a little good showing together. We've seen you know John Silver. Speaking of him, show off a lot of his strength. This guy was lifting D3, throwing D3 around. He's a small guy, but he's super stocky and strong. The end finish of this match was Dark Order does a triple team to stop a hot Valley who was really having control of this match. He had all the momentum and they just took it out. They ended up taking out Baron Blade. Then they hit their trio finisher on Valley for the win. I think they called it like, I think Taz was calling like the woodpecker, the, the bird pecker, something with bird and water. Cause it's like, uh, like the office thing where the bird just constantly hits that one spot all day. Eventually someone's going to come up with a tag finisher for it. Either it's Taz or Excalibur or Dark Order comes out and say, this is the official name of this move. Other than that, we're going to call it the bird pecker or whatever, because that's what I'm going to call it. After that, we get Warlow versus Vinny Pacifico. Now this was an absolute squash match. We've seen Vinny attempt a shotgun dropkick, but it doesn't even phase Wardlow. Then Vinny goes for, for the single leg. Then Wardlow gut wrenches him, then knocks him out with the hanging knee. And then that was it. That, that was the whole match. He, he got a gut wrench and then he hit him with that falling knee to knock him out. And after the match, he attacks him and hits him with that F10. He just destroys him. So like I said, Warlow is my pick to, to defeat Jungle Boy in that first round of that opener tournament. Because, and, and, I mean, obviously it's AW Dark. He's going to look dominant. You know, he's probably not going to do it to Jungle Boy. He's not going to beat him in 10 seconds. But and, and he's impressive. And you got to give that to that man. That man is impressive. And he's going to get his shine. After that, we've seen Matt Seidel versus Sean Dean. Uh, Seidel was in control to start this match early. The end spot of this match was Sean Dean delivers the Tiger Driver, but Seidel ends up kicking out at one. Then Sean Dean attempts a move, but Seidel counters it with a rising knee strike. He locks in that Cobra Clutch, but Dean fights out. Then Seidel kicks him in the head to then drop him on his head. Then he applies the Cobra Clutch to pick up the victory. So for, I think, the third week in a row, we don't see Matt Seidel use that shooting star press. I don't know if they're playing off the story of him, you know, slipping at that, uh, I think it was the buy-in. I don't know what they're doing. Maybe he just doesn't want to use it anymore. Maybe he wants to try something else. But I miss seeing him do that shooting star press, and I hope we get to see that shooting star press soon. Now, we move on to the end and final match of AW Dark. It's Ray Phoenix versus Sonny Kiss. We've seen a match start with a collar elbow tie-up, which had to break quickly. Then both men lock up in a Roman Greco knuckle lock. They battled for control a bit, but Sonny Kiss ended up gaining control just for a while before an athletic Ray Phoenix took advantage with his aerial offense. We've seen Sonny then get a back bridge, but the arm gave out because Ray Phoenix had been targeting that arm the whole match. We've seen a different side of Phoenix this match. He was more technical and more, you know, holdy and submission-wise. We didn't see too much aerial offense from Ray Phoenix. We've seen some, but he was more focused on his technical aspect of his wrestling, and I don't blame him but I'm trying to figure out why are we seeing so many superstars who are used to high flying try to make that transition into technical wrestling. We've seen Sonny Kiss then hit the X's and O's to get a near fall. The 
end finish to this match where Sonny goes to the top, but Phoenix does a rolling uppercut. Then he catches Sonny Kiss in a muscle buster position. He then does a spin out power bomb for the win. So we see Ray Phoenix pick up the win ahead of his round one opener against his brother Pentagon Jr. You know, I think that's going to be the match of the night. Those two brothers know each other. They've wrestled each other in the past. They've had some really good matches. Maybe you should try to watch some of their old matches when they faced each other to get yourself excited for this match because I know I am. So, you know, with that being said, I want to say that AEW Dark, you know, they went from an hour. Now they're two hours. That's becoming a lot of wrestling. I think that's a little too much. I think, you know, that's they're trying to compete with NXT and all. I get it. But they should have just kept the hour show. I think it's so much. There's a lot of like chaos. There's a lot of matches, yes. But two hours is just too long for a show like that. It's not super entertaining at times. So it becomes a little difficult to hold on for two hours to watch AW Dark. So I would hope that one day they realize, you know what? This is a little too much. Let's go back to that regular hour. And then I'll be happy because sitting through two hours of AW Dark is just like it. Sometimes it's good. And then sometimes I just want to turn it off and just not even cover it anymore. But, you know, I do it because I love wrestling and I have to stick to it in order to give you guys the matches. I may not give you a super description of the matches on Dark because, like I said, they're usually short, which is why they try to throw in so many matches. But I try to do my best to watch it and pay attention to it and not get bored of it. But, AEW, go back to one hour, please. Dark does not need to be two hours. Now, we move on to AEW Dynamite. This week's Dynamite kicked off with Wardlow versus Jungle Boy for the first round of the AEW World Tournament. We've seen Jungle Boy trying to pick his spots early because nothing was phasing Wardlow. Jungle Boy then goes for her Karana, but Wardlow ends up catching him and tossing him into the ring post. We've seen Wardlow in control for most of this match. Jungle Boy was struggling to build up some offense, but Wardlow tries to hit his finishing knee, but eats a knee from Jungle Boy to turn the tide. We see Jungle Boy then go up to the top rope, but Wardlow kips up out of nowhere. He jumps to the top rope. He was gonna hit an F10 on Jungle Boy, but he turned it into an avalanche hurricanrana. Then hits a double knees for a near fall. So we see Jungle Boy try his finish early, but cannot put Wardlow away. We see the fight then spill to the outside. Then Wardlow F10s Jungle Boy from the outside of the ring to the inside of the ring. Then when he arrives back inside the ring, he hits another F10 to pick up the win. So we see Wardlow advance. So he will face the winner of Hangman Adam Page and Colt Cabana. And like I said, Wardlow was my pick to win over Jungle Boy. I don't think he's my pick to win the whole thing because we already know the how the ending is going to work. It's going to be Hangman Adam Page versus Kenny Omega. After that, we've seen that Eddie Kingston cut a promo last week after Dynamite went off the air. And let me tell you, Eddie Kingston probably cuts one of the best promos in the business. And this promo that he cut after Dynamite last week was just so believable. It looked like he was actually crying, like he was shedding real tears. And you know what? He probably was. He probably is really hurt by John Moxley. He kept saying that you were supposed to take us with you to the land of the entertainers. He said that John Moxley said that the inmates were going to run the asylum, but he ended off leaving to make millions of dollars and to meet his beautiful wife, who is Renee Young. So Eddie Kingston still hurt that John Moxley went on to do things without him when I guess he guaranteed him that they were always going to travel and be together because they were really good friends. After that, we get a Mox video package on Eddie Kingston. He says he and Eddie Kingston were close friends. He loved him, but the Eddie Kingston that is now, he doesn't know who he is. He's not sorry for joining the land of the entertainers and he says he will get his friend back no matter what. And then at full gear, it is announced that him and Eddie Kingston's match will be an I quit match for the AEW World Championship. So I think that's going to 
going to be a really good match. Now, don't get me wrong. If Eddie Kingston ends up winning the AEW World Championship, I wouldn't be mad at it. We got a champion who can do wrestling and who can cut really good promos. And that's all we need in a champion. He has that championship attitude, and I love it. After that, we get Kenny Omega versus Sonny Kiss. Sonny Kiss replaced Joey Janela because he came in contact with someone at an independent wrestling show who had COVID. So he ended up dropping out of this match. They gave it to Sonny Kiss. We seen the cleaner Omega back. He had a grand entrance. He had two girls with brooms. He had, you know, the different look he had. You know, he still wore the same attire, but he had just like a different look on his face. And then Justin Roberts went through all his accolades. So I was like, yeah, this guy's back to the cleaner. Justin Roberts is sitting here talking about this guy was the PWI number one ranked wrestler in 2019 former IWGP champion. He was going through all his accolades. But we've seen the match start and Kenny Omega starts the match instantly with a V-trigger then hits his one-winged angel for the finish. So Joey Janela's replacement Sonny Kiss was squashed. It wasn't even a match. And then Omega after he hit the one-winged angel just sat there with a blank stare. So that's how you know Cleaner Omega's back and I feel like he's going to win that AEW World Championship eventually. I know he's going to win this tournament. If he loses to Hangman Page, I'll be truly surprised. After that, we get an Orange Cassie interview. He was so nonchalant when talking about Cody. I think Tony Schiavone asked him, like, how does he feel about having a rematch with Cody Rhodes for the TNT Championship? And he said, okay. And that's all he said. He was so nonchalant. He's mastered the King of Sloth style. He's mastered just not caring. And I like that about Orange Cassie. Then Cody Rhodes arrives. He gets asked about his rematch. He says that it might be a surprise stipulation. He doesn't see Orange Cassidy winning. He says he's also moving up in weight division when asked about his four. 14 pounds of muscle gained. So we're saying Cody Rhodes move up from that light heavyweight to that heavyweight division. I mean, he's beat guys like Lance Archer, Mr. Brody Lee. He called, he said he doesn't want to give Justin Roberts another nickname to call him the Giant Slayer or, or the Giant Killer, something like that. But, you know, with Cody moving up in weight class, I mean, we'll never see him fight for the AW World Championship unless there's a stipulation that lets him get that championship match back. But since he lost it to Jericho, he probably isn't getting that title ever again. Now we move on to the next round of the opening tournament from Penta El Cero M versus Ray Phoenix. We've seen an Eddie Kingston prone before this match. He says he hated who he became. He says FTR is going to lose if they face the Butcher and the Blade. Then FTR is going to have to call their old bosses to go back to the land of entertainers. So Eddie Kingston throwing shots at FTR there. We also seen Eddie Kingston come out on commentary. Then the match begins. Both brothers were evenly matched to start. There were multiple pin attempts that led to a stalemate. We've seen brothers exchange changing chops. Then Phoenix tries to hit a springboard, but he eats a super kick. Penta tries to package pile driver Ray Phoenix on the apron, but Phoenix fights it off to hit a corkscrew dive off the top rope. So we've seen Ray Phoenix go back to that athletic, that high flyer momentum, not that submission, uh, you know, the technicality he tried to use against Sonny Kiss. He ended up doing really well in showing his technical side of wrestling, but we know Ray Phoenix is just predominantly the best high flyer in the world. We see Penta pull the ropes as his brother tried to run across the rope taking advantage of the match. During the picture-in-picture, picture, Penta takes the fight to the outside. He goes for a chop, but Ray Phoenix duck. Then Penta ends up chopping the ring post. We see then Phoenix try to do a handstand spring, but ends up eating a super kick. So both men are down outside. So this match so far is still evenly matched. We see Ray Phoenix land on his head during an aerial maneuver. It dazes him for a bit. And this is where the match changed a little bit. We see that Ray Phoenix, you know, he does his aerial stuff. But when you take those high 
high risk, it's super dangerous, and Ray Phoenix showed us. He landed super hard on his head that Penta was worrying about his own brother, and then Penta, you know, eats a super kick from Ray Phoenix. I don't think he was playing possum, but I feel like he was just trying to keep the match going. We've seen a bunch of near falls, even one after an avalanche Spanish fly. So we're still seeing these high-flying moves, even though Ray Phoenix is dazed a little bit. We see Pentagon then launch Ray high into the sky. Then he catches him into a power bomb, then gets the near fall. After he hits his arm of Phoenix, which caused concerns, which caused him to hesitate. Then Ray hits a Canadian destroyer out of nowhere to advance in the tournament. So we will see Ray Phoenix versus Kenny Omega in round two. Wrong, because it was later on announced that Ray Phoenix is legitimately injured and he will give up his opportunity to his brother Ray Phoenix. I mean, excuse me, uh, Pentagon Jr. So we will see Pentagon versus Kenny Omega in the second round. Will it be a squash match? I don't think so. Um, you know, they had really good matches. It's pretty much a rematch for 2018's All In. If you've seen that pay-per-view, you know that they could put on a really good match. It's unfortunate that Ray Phoenix has an injury. I really think it's because of the way he landed on his head. They're probably taking a concussion protocol or something like that. So, you know, speedy recovery to Ray Phoenix and hopefully he comes back and he's able to like get a title shot somewhere down the line. After this match, we get a Dark Order promo backstage. They say they will win all the gold and Brody Lee will be back next week for that TNT championship match between Cody and Orange Cassidy. After that, we move on to the next first round matchup between Colt Cabana and Hangman Adam Page. Hangman's graphic this week read, enter the tournament via drunken voicemails. So Hangman Adam Page got his spot in this tournament by sending drunken voicemails to Tony Khan. After that, the match begins. We see neither man could get an advantage early. Both men were exchanging offense. Even through picture picture, no one can take full control. Hangman goes for that Ari Hara moonsault, but Colt pushes him and he lands hard on the side of the apron. Then Colt delivers a splash to follow up. Colt Cabana goes for a Chicago skyline. Hangman Adam Page counters, then goes for his buckshot lariat, but Colt Cabana ends up ducking under. He goes for that Superman pin, but Hangman Page kicks out. And when Hangman Page gets up, Colt Cabana tosses Hangman to the outside, who fakes the buckshot lariat. Uh, Colt Cabana ended up flinching, which caused Hangman to actually hit that buckshot lariat for real this time. So we see Hangman Page advancing to the next round. He will fight Wardlow in the second round. We also seen after the match that the Dark Order came out to help Colt Cabana. I thought it was pretty interesting because of, you know, they didn't come out with him on AW Dark. And then they almost cost him this match and them being John Silver and Alex Reynolds. So I thought that was pretty weird. So we'll just have to see how that plays out. After that, we get a promo from Team Taz. He says that he has a problem with Will Hobbs. He says he offered him a spot in Team Taz and he still got no response. The next issue was Darby Allen. He's getting a title match at full gear. Ricky Starks then cuts a good promo. He says he showed up and showed out just to have the rug pulled from under him. He says he's proved his worth and now he has to watch someone else get a TNT title shot and he's just supposed to be okay with that. Someone's got to pay and that person is Darby Allen. He even tells Darby Allen, you're not even on my level. So we see Ricky Starks is frustrated that he's not getting that title shot and Darby Allen is. Well, I think that after Darby Allen, I feel like he deserves his title shot. He has proved his worth in AW. He's came in. He showed off. He showed us what he got. He's really good in the ring and he's really good on the mic. You know, he's not like Eddie Kingston level, but he's really good on the mic. He knows how to cut a promo. So I hope to see that Ricky Starks gets a title shot uh, soon. We then move on to Chris Jericho and MJF's dinner debonair. The segment starts off with MJF. He orders a 20 ounce porterhouse steak with a baked potato. Well done. And then we see Chris Jericho order the same thing, but he begins to love lower the temperature and they just go back and forth lowering the temperature until they're at rare and blue rare. So then, you know, Chris Jericho says that he doesn't know if MJF should be in the 
inner circle also tells us that you know him and the inner circle will have a town hall meeting next week to decide the fate of MJF going into the inner circle and then after that it turns into a musical segment and then we discovered that MJF could truly sing I thought it was a voiceover at one point but it was truly MJF singing and I thought this was actually super entertaining there's a lot of controversy behind this you know segment people hated it they said it was a joke they said you know if WWE did it they'll be burned for it and you know I feel like WWE gets burned for a lot of things but this this segment wasn't bad we see our truth run around with the 24-7 championship all the time and let's not forget we seen that you know WWE had a musical themselves I think it was back way back when it was for the Royal Rumble and they were having a musical and Vince McMahon woke up and he's like that's not the type of Royal Rumble I was thinking of so they they've done this before and no one should be dragging anybody through the mud this was a good and entertaining segment and I liked it and I truly enjoyed it and no one can tell me otherwise you got a Hall of Famer and then you got the future of this business having fun enjoying that you know just showing us that wrestling isn't only about you know just you know doing fancy moves and stuff they're giving us good stuff good content you got to remember that all elite wrestling came from a YouTube web series that was all about jokes comedy and they actually wrestled on some of the episodes so this isn't like a super super serious moment and they they took this advantage they even got you know clearance from Frank Sinatra himself to go through with this segment and people loved it people hate it everyone has their opinions but to say that AEW is a joke and all this just because of this segment I think you know all these marks out here need to get it together and realize that it's all fun and and you know people need to realize that all wrestling shows have fun moments we've seen TNA have a wedding we've seen Raw have weddings we haven't seen an AEW wedding yet we just seen him have the best man segments but everybody has you know funny segments Raw every week has a 24-7 segment like I just said a couple minutes ago so people need to stop dragging AEW and trying to be like oh yeah this killed AEW this and all that it didn't kill AEW it actually made AEW a lot better because you're giving it the publicity that it should get from this great segment but after the song we see both men receive their raw stakes and then they say it's too much for them so they hand it back to their server and that's how that segment ends like I said that segment was pure gold and shout out to MJF and Chris Jericho for putting on such a great segment after that we seen Britt Baker versus Kylan King this was a back and forth match it was kind of quick we seen Kylan King you know have some serious potential in this match like I said last week or I think it was this week I believe on AW Dark she had her match and she looked very good she has a lot of star power and she has a lot of potential in this business and then we see Britt Baker finally hit a curb stomp then puts on the lockjaw to submit King so Britt Baker picks up a win I don't know if she's gonna be back in that uh, AW women's rankings for the championship against Hikaru Shida I think she is in the rankings I have to double check on that I'm not sure about it after that we learn that the TNT championship will be defended in a lumberjack match so there will be a first ever lumberjack match on AEW then we get a Darby Allen video segment with Steve-O he puts himself in a body bag and then rolls himself off of a ramp I don't know what he was trying to prove maybe he was trying to prove that he could take pain and that he could handle whatever's thrown at him but I think this was a pointless segment if you want to get mad at this get mad at this because this was pointless but don't get mad at them singing at a dinner debonair because that was fantastic next we have our final match the main event of the evening the four-way number one contenders match butcher and the blade versus private party versus the dark order alex and silver we have the young bucks as well we also have ftr on commentary we see the young bucks in control early we had isaiah cassidy and nick have a great sequence the bucks try to fake them out again like they did last week try to shake their hand and end up super kicking them but this time private party delivers a super kick to them we see mark quinn dive on three 
different guys, three different ways. Hitting a shooting star press from the butcher and the blade, he also got the near fall. So this guy, he's sitting around flipping. He's doing suicide dive, tope con helos. He's doing three different dives on three different guys to then get back in the ring to hit a shooting star press for a near fall. Like I said, a lot of these guys on AW are our future and people got to get used to that. After that, we get Sammy Guevara and Matt Hardy. They came out of nowhere. They were just brawling. I guess they were brawling in the back. Then they brought it to ringside. The Young Bucks look like, what the heck is going on here? So I thought that was pretty interesting for it to happen. We also then see the Butcher and the Blade throw up the Dark Order signs to Silver and Alex. Then we seen Alex the Bunny climb up to the apron. She distracted Silver and Reynolds by, you know, faking that she was going to throw up the Dark Order symbol too. But then we see them get blasted by Butcher and the Blade. You know, later on the match, we seen John Silver hit a flurry taking out all men. Then he tags in Alex Reynolds for some great tag team offense. Late in the match, we seen Butcher and the Blade hit full death on Mark Quinn, but the Bucks break it up. We see the Bucks then hit a power driver senton combo and then all teams break up the pin. So we see a lot of pins heading into the end match. After that, we see Nick. He prevented Cassidy from making a tag to anyone. We see the Bucks reverse a roll up to gain the pinfall to face FTR at full gear. So we see the Young Bucks picking up a win via roll up. That's not the way I would like to see them win. You know, uh, that's how uh, Private Party won their match against the Young Buck in that tournament for the AEW Tag Team Championships. So I guess they were trying to play on that same coincidence that happened to them, which is good storytelling in my opinion. I just wouldn't like them to roll up because they're the Young Bucks, but if they were trying to tell a, tell a story, excuse me, we can't really be mad at that. We've seen FTR then go to the ring to congratulate the Bucks. They offer a beer, but the Bucks then knock it out of FTR's hand. Then a mystery man attacks the Bucks with a chair. Then the beating ensues. We see FTR wrap a chair around Matt's leg and then they stomp it, hurting Matt's leg. Even Nick had a bloody nose. The mystery man turned out to be Tully Blanchard. If you didn't notice it was Tully Blanchard, then you need to get your eyes checked because that man looked old as hell and he, the way he walked in the ring and swung that chair was just ridiculous. Then we see a triple team move from FTR and Tully Blanchard spiking Nick Jackson on his head. Now, you know, I'm okay with FTR fighting Young Bucks for, you know, the tag team championships. It's been destined for years. They've been taunting each other for years and it's about time we get this match. I think it's going to be a really good match. So we're going to see that happen. But there's something I want to talk about what happened during this match. We've seen during this match, we've seen Alex Reynolds take a silly string by a private party and it knocked him out cold. And then in this match, you can see that he was out for at least two minutes. And then we see the blade like drag him across the rope and then tag his lifeless body. Now there was nothing done. Like the referee didn't stop the match, didn't say nothing. We just seen a lifeless Alex Reynolds in the middle of the ring. I'm glad he's okay. He mentioned on Twitter, you know, that the officials did a great job and he's okay. I disagree with him. I don't think the officials did a great job at all. We even see Cody come out at the end to make sure he was okay because I'm pretty sure he noticed that, you know, there wasn't enough response time, which is kind of upsetting because these guys are not only here to entertain us, but they deserve to be protected. And I feel like Alex Reynolds wasn't protected. This guy was legit out cold for two whole minutes and no one did nothing. No one tried to drag him out the ring. No one tried to give him any attention. And I thought that was like unprofessional and I thought that was pretty dumb on AEW's part to just let that happen. So that's where my anger lies with AEW at the moment. Other than that, it was a pretty good show. I liked every moment of it. I thought the dinner debonair was fantastic. That was my favorite part of the night. The Lucha Bros match with Ray Phoenix and Pentagon was probably the match of the night because that these two brothers really know each other and they've done this before. And I'm glad to see that uh, Kenny Omega, the cleaner, is back. So that's really good to see. So now look forward to next week in Wardlow versus Hangman Adam Page and Pentagon Jr. versus Kenny Omega. And the winner 
there, those matches will head on to the finals at full gear. So now that we're done with AW, now we're going to move on to Friday Night SmackDown. SmackDown this week kicked off with the KO show. Special guest tonight was Daniel Bryan. Owen says he wants to be tag team champions. And you know what? What better way to do it than then teaming with Daniel Bryan? You know, Bryan, you know, he says, you know, we had a lot of pa- a lot of history. He also says you don't have a tag team title because you portrayed a lot of your friends. And Owen's like, you know what? You know, we're not going to talk about that right now. But it'll be cool if we were on a team together. Bryan then goes on to say that, you know, the IC title should be defended every week. And I know that's not going to sit well with Sami Zayn since, you know, he feels like everybody's out to get him. We then see Dolph Ziggler and Bobby Roode interrupt. They say they're the best thing that happened to SmackDown. Then the Street Profits come out. Then Sheamus and Nakamura come out. And they say they've been carrying SmackDown just to get their title stolen from them. Daniel Bryan tells Owens they should test out this little theory he has of being tag team champions. Then a brawl begins. Then we get an impromptu eight-man tag between the Street Profits, Daniel Bryan and Kevin Owens versus Dolph Ziggler, Bobby Roode, Cesaro, and Nakamura. It was a back-and-forth match early. We've seen Daniel Bryan return to the match with his gear. He wasn't on the apron at the start of his match because when he went on to the KO show, he had a suit on, so, you know, he probably had to go back and change. We see the heels firmly in control. I'm calling them the heels because I'm not going to say Ziggler, Dolph, Rude a thousand times. They're the heel group, and Kevin Owens' group is the babyface group. So the heels are firmly in control till Montez fights out of the corner to give a hot tag to Daniel Bryan. We see Daniel Bryan go for his signature backflip counter, but he lands wrong. He ends up tweaking his knee. Then the heels regain control. During the break, Cesaro attacked Daniel Bryan's injured leg. Then the main focus to attack Daniel Bryan's leg. So everyone did that. Bryan finally was able to make a tag to Dawkins, who then turns the tide for a bit. We've seen Kevin Owens break up a Cesaro pin. Then Owens stunners Bobby Roode. Ziggler then comes in hitting a DDT on Kevin Owens. We see Dawkins then get rid of Dolph Ziggler, but Cesaro rolls up Dawkins. He tried to use the ropes, but the uh, referee was able to see it. Then Dawkins hits a distracted Cesaro with his signature one-handed spine buster. Then Daniel Bryan and KO take out the others. Dawkins ends up tagging his tag partner Montez Ford to hit their tag finisher to win the match. So we see a big victory by our new SmackDown Tag Team Champions and Daniel Bryan and Kevin Owens. Now let me know, do you feel like we should have a tag team between Daniel Bryan's and Kevin Owens or should Daniel Bryan, you know, go on his singles run and go after the IC title? Maybe he can defend it every week. Let me know what you think about that. After that, we get a Law and Otis segment. You know, Miz and Otis has been fighting these court cases for a long time. So now they're actually giving us a court case. Uh, They broke it up into segments. So I'm going to tell you it in the segments. We've seen that the APA is in this segment. John Bradshaw Layfield was the judge and Farouk was the bailiff. So it's good to see that the APA was a part of this segment. There really wasn't much in this first segment. Miz was just talking about how Otis doesn't deserve it. And, you know, he's just making a mockery of everybody who's held the briefcase before. So then Otis says his piece. He says that he won it. So he earned it fair and square. Miz's lawyer then agrees and says that's a good argument. And then Miz ends up firing her. And then they cut away. So that's part one of this Law and Otis segment. After that, we get a Bianca Belair versus Alina Vega match. We finally see Bianca Belair. No more of those crappy segments of her being better than everybody. We've seen before the match, though, that the Street Profits and Daniel Bryan and Kevin Owens were celebrating. Then Daniel Bryan tells everybody to fist him, and everybody just stops and looks at him for a second, and then they laugh about it. We then see Sami Zayn approach him. He then says he heard him badmouthing him, and he'll defend the championship whenever he wants, not when Daniel Bryan wants. So we all knew that Sami Zayn was going to get all testy about it because he feels like everybody's after him. So I think that's going to ensue a Daniel 
Daniel Bryan versus Sami Zayn match eventually. But back to the ring, we see Belair dominating early, showcasing all that athleticism and that strength. Zelina Vega tried to mount some offense, but Belair's strength just stops it. We've seen Belair do something impressive. She deadlifts Zelina Vega from the ground, then lifts her up into a gorilla press slam position, then delivers a snake eyes and hits her KOD for the win. So we finally see what Bianca Belair is capable of. We've seen it before, but those of you who are new to Bianca Belair, you need to know that she is phenomenal. And she's even being compared to like a Mr. Perfect. So apparently she's now going to be the female Mrs. Perfect. She's good at everything. She's good at sports. She's just dominant in everything she does. And that's not me saying that. That's just, you know, what's going around. That's the rumor mill that they're trying to make her into a Mr. Perfect type character. After that, we see Lars Sullivan versus Shorty G. Lars Sullivan dominates early. Shorty G then rakes the eyes of Lars Sullivan to spark some offense. But Lars didn't let that last. He tosses him across the ring, then hits a vicious clothesline, then puts the freak accident on him for the win. After the match, Shorty G is asked, how does he feel? Then he says he quits. So we're saying like an Austin Theory type situation here. I'm not sure yet. After that, we get a backstage segment with Seth Rollins. He says that he brought up Buddy Murphy. He says he brought up someone who was nothing. And then that he asked for this match so he can show that we are the greater good. And he will show Murphy what it's like and why he is the disciple and he is the Messiah. So we got ourselves a match between Seth Rollins and Buddy Murphy later on. After that, there was another backstage segment. We've seen Adam Pearce check on Shorty G. He says he quits. Adam Pearce was like, I just want to make sure I heard that right. You quit? And then Shorty G says, yeah, I quit. I quit being Shorty G. I quit being the joke. I want to go back to being that Olympic athlete, that national wrestler. I'm back. He says, I'm going back to Chad Gable. So we're going to see Chad Gable back. We know Chad Gable was a part of American Alpha with Jason Jordan. He was doing good on his solo career when Jason Jordan had his solo career. They were doing really, he was doing really well on his own. So hopefully they give him a little bit shine because he has been underutilized. He is one of those good sleeper wrestlers and I think he deserves a chance. Then we get a Bailey in-ring promo. She says all the interviewers she had an interview with asked her the same question. Why didn't she sign the contract? She says Sasha is a spoiled brat and she doesn't want to give her what she wants. She won't sign that contract, she says. Then Sasha Banks comes out with the contract. Bailey then tries to attack Sasha Banks with the chair, but she avoids it. Then she takes hold of that SmackDown Women's title. Sasha says, you want it back? You have to sign it, Bailey. Then Bailey tries to trick her, but she eats a knee from Sasha Banks. Sasha Banks then wraps the chair around Bailey's neck and forces her to sign, which she does. So it's confirmed we will see Sasha Banks versus Bailey at Hell in a Cell for that SmackDown Women's Championship. After that, Law and Otis continues. Morrison was on the stand. He says he was attacked by Otis and, you know, he has emotional trauma. Then we see Rey Mysterio who says that Otis wanted fair and square. Then Asuka begins to go on the stand. She doesn't even speak English. JBL then asks, did anyone get that? Then we see Teddy Long say every single word, player. So it's good to see Teddy Long. You know, we haven't seen Teddy Long in a long, a long, long time. We used to see him all the time on SmackDown when he was a general manager. And then every stipulation would be, now you have a match with The Undertaker. So Undertaker was his favorite. Every time that was your punishment, it was The Undertaker. Then we see Tucker is next on the stand. He says Miz deserved all that Otis has done. Tucker says Miz is the reason Otis hasn't cashed in. He's too focused on the Miz. Then he says he wants to attack the Miz. So JBL then ends up taking a recess. They come back. JBL had his final ruling, but the Miz says he has one more piece of evidence. Then he pulls out a black briefcase which had money in it then it's announced that JBL said it will be Miz versus Otis at Hell in a Cell
yourself for that money in the bank contract. Now, this is what I knew was going to happen. I knew eventually they were going to fight for it. But my thing is, I don't see Otis losing it. I just, I don't see Miz winning it. Even though I would love for Miz to win it, the storyline is just not written for Otis to lose it. If he loses it, I'll be surprised because then that doesn't really give Miz a long time to cash it in because that year is almost up. But I, like I said, I think it's going to go in favor of Otis. I think John Morrison at some point is going to cost Miz the match, not purposely, maybe not purposely, or maybe accidentally. I don't know, but I feel like Otis is going to be the winner of this match. After this, we get a Seth Rollins versus Buddy Murphy match. Now, bear with me because I took a lot of notes on this match because it was a truly, truly good match. And I want people to know that Buddy Murphy is not just some wrestler. He is a talented wrestler and he could be the future of this company. So we see Aaliyah watching backstage. We know Aaliyah and Buddy Murphy has some sort of, you know, cahoots going on. We see neither men able to take control. So Rollins tell Buddy he's the disciple and he is the Messiah. Then Buddy puts him in a wrist lock. Then Rollins reverses the hold and hits Buddy with a solid right hand. And then he holds Buddy Murphy in a headlock. Buddy Murphy then finally mounts some offense. He heard Karana Seth Rollins out the ring. He goes for a dive, then notices that Rollins is ducking. So he slides out, then delivers a back body drop to Rollins on the announce table. Then we see Buddy try to go up, but Seth Rollins knocks him off. Then it cuts to the back where Ray and Dominic ask Aaliyah, what is she doing here? Why are you here? Why are you watching Murphy? Then she says, you know, I'm grown. You can't tell me what to do. I can do what I want. So we see Aaliyah being defiant towards her father and her brother. So maybe Buddy Murphy isn't that much of a good influence on her. We see Buddy Murphy once again mount some offense with the flurry and then a dive. He then hits a meteor from the top rope but hurts himself on the landing. He ends up hurting his shoulder. That's what they were trying to go for when he hit the meteor. He landed on his shoulder. We see Buddy then head to the outside to pop his shoulder back in. Rollins then takes full advantage and hits a suicide dive. Then a springboard needs to get the near fall. Then Rollins starts to focus on that arm. We see Murphy. He tried to build some offense once again, but that arm would not let him. Seth then hits him with a buckle bomb, then goes for a curb stomp, but Buddy ends up hitting a running knee for a near fall. Both men exchange in the middle of the ring. Then Rollins hits a falcon arrow for a near fall. And this is the ending of the match. We see Rollins go for a curb stomp multiple times, but missed it. Then Buddy tries to build up some offense, but eats an elbow, then a curb stomp for Seth Rollins for the win. After the match, we see Rollins go for that kendo stick, and Aaliyah axes Ray and Dominic like someone go help Murphy. They said they have nothing to do with it. They have they have to stay out of this. She says, no, if you guys are not going to help, I'm going to help. Then Rollins sees Aaliyah, and then he begins to beat Buddy Murphy. Rollins then leaves because he sees Dominic coming down. As soon as we think Rollins is gone, we see him attack Dominic from behind. He starts to beat him up. Then we hear Rey Mysterio's music plays, and Rey Mysterio comes out to make the save. And then, you know, they see Buddy and Aaliyah. They were, like, holding each other, and Dominic and Rey Mysterio are so confused. We even heard Dominic say, this is why I said she shouldn't be here. She should not be here. Rey Mysterio tells Dominic, she came here for you. That's the only reason why she's here. I know she shouldn't be here, but she wants to support you. So I want to know what direction is this storyline going in? It's it's like reaching a different a different angle than what it usually is. They moved away from the, the whole you're not the father thing. So that's good. At least they moved from that. But then again, I want to know what direction they're going in with the storyline. Are we going to see Buddy Murphy and Seth Rollins finally team up to take down the Messiah? Is the Messiah going to find someone else to be his disciple to help him out with that? Uh, we have to see where that goes. I think it's going 
going to be interesting where it goes. Like I said, I'm glad they finally moved away from the illegitimate child storyline. After that, we get Roman Reigns. He finally reveals his consequences to us. Roman was about to speak. Then Jay pops up on the screen and says, it's been good to be your cousin. But now that you're the tribal chief, you have your tribal chief head up your ass and it isn't good to be your cousin anymore. Then he takes off the mask and it's revealed to be Jimmy who then says, Jay is behind you. Jay begins to attack Roman Reigns. Then he gets a chair. He was going to use it, but Roman Reigns ends up kicking him. Roman then takes the chair, but Jay Uso hits him with a super kick and then Uso splash. We see Jay Uso and his brother then celebrating at the top of the ramp. We then see Roman Reigns get up. He speaks. He says, you think this is a game? You boys think this is funny? He says, if he is made to quit at Hell in a Cell, he will have to live with that and he's okay with that. But when he makes Jay Uso quit, him, his brother, and their families will be exiled from the family. And then the cage starts to lower. We see Jay Uso get upset. He says, who are you, Uso? So he walks down and he climbs up the cage and him and Roman Reigns have a stare down. They exchange words. I wasn't able to hear what they were saying, but this, this is getting a lot, lot better. And I think this storyline is probably one of the best storylines in WWE history. You know, this storyline has a lot to go for. And now if Jay Uso loses, him and his family will be exiled from the family, which means that, you know, now they have nothing to do with the Samoan dynasty. They'll be out forever. So there's a lot riding on this match. You would think that Jay Uso would win, but I don't see Roman Reigns losing his title yet. If he loses this title, I'll be super surprised. It'll be good for the storyline, but if he loses, I'll be super surprised. So that ends SmackDown. Uh, SmackDown this week was really good. Uh, a lot of people have been saying SmackDown has been terrible. I don't agree with that. I think SmackDown is way better than Raw. So this week, SmackDown proved that it was really good. The Buddy Murphy match with Seth Rollins was fantastic. We're going to see Daniel Bryan and Kevin Owens be a tag team eventually. I'll go for it. Daniel Bryan said this is his last run. He wants to give younger superstars a chance. He wants to give them more TV time. So we're going to see Daniel Bryan have his one last run, and I can't wait to see where that goes. So tomorrow is uh, Hell in a Cell. So I will be dropping two episodes uh, on Sunday because I have to, you know, edit and all the other stuff. So tomorrow there'll be episodes uh, 8 and 8.5 with my Hell in a Cell review, which starts at 7 o'clock. Um, if you want to message me on Twitter, if you want to hit me up on Facebook, my Twitter is at Wrestling From. My Facebook is Ray Colazzo. Um, I don't think this is anything else I have to say. I think uh, pretty much wrestling this week was pretty good. I just want to throw that out there. Wrestling this week was fantastic. A lot of the storylines were really good. A lot of captivating moments in some of these matches. So this was a pretty good week for wrestling. And I think if you haven't watched any of these shows, you should check it out. Don't forget that next week is Walter versus Isha Dragunov. That's going to be a crazy match. And the, the, the tournament continues for AEW. We also have Halloween Havoc next week. So make sure you stick, uh, stick tuned for that. That's going to be a really good show. So that's going to end episode eight. This has been Wrestling from the Crowd. My name is Ray Colazzo. Good morning, good evening, good night, no matter where you are. Thanks for listening.